Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org, and this program is being pre-recorded for Friday, January 10th, 2020. Right now it is Wednesday afternoon. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening we are going to present a review of the sermon by Bertrand Compare titled, the higher calling. Perhaps it is fitting that each time I begin a review of a sermon by Compare or Swift or an essay by Emmaheiser, that I do so with reflections on my own early Christian identity studies. However, I had originally embarked on my studies because I was compelled by sermons such as these from Compare or Swift. And I was helped along the way by Emma Heiser. This sermon, however, is important to me because it shows that regarding one critical issue, I have always generally agreed with Compare, while many other Christian identity pastors or teachers and their followers have different opinions which are not so well grounded in Scripture. Often, those who have disagreed with me on this issue have even attributed to Compare a position which he did not hold. That critical issue is the fact that all Israel shall be saved. It's incredible to me that some white men who claim to be Christian identity actually hate that idea. They hate it. They despise me for repeating it. I'm not teaching it. I'm only repeating what the scripture teaches, that all Israel shall be saved. And I'm despised for it. These people, I'll call them that, these people who despise me for teaching that would actually see one of their own white brethren be tossed into eternal flames than to be rehabilitated and brought back into the family of God, regardless of their sins. This world is transient. Yahweh knows all the sins that all of his children are going to commit, even before he created them. Yet he still created us. We're still here. Because, as Compare titled this sermon, there is a higher calling that all Israel shall be saved. The Bible states rather plainly, as it is found in both the letters of Paul in Romans chapter 11 and in the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 45. The scriptures also lead us to make the same implication in many other places. But in spite of that, many identity Christians argue against it and even despise us for holding to the assertion. However, we would assert that their doctrines are the remnants of their denominational baggage and they are not founded in Scripture. There is one popular belief that is probably found in every Christian denomination, 
which is that people who are generally good in their patterns of behavior go to heaven, and people who are bad in their patterns of behavior, or who have been especially bad at one time or another, are in danger of going to hell forever. To that, the Roman Catholic Church added the concept of purgatory, as priests needed an angle by which to extort men out of their money, convincing them that their loved ones were stuck and couldn't quite make it to heaven without the intervention of the priests. Being raised Catholic to some degree, as a young man, I had, I had the same general understanding regarding these teachings on salvation, except that I don't think I ever really believed or perhaps only never cared about the claims concerning purgatory. So when I found Christian identity, sermons such as this made an impression which led me to inquire into these things more carefully. And when I began to actually study the scriptures, especially in their original languages, the conclusions which I had reached remained in general agreement with Compare's position on this issue, and perhaps the differences we may have are only due to semantic differences. So now we will hear it from Compare himself with some notes from both myself and from Clifton Emmeheiser, which I will save Clifton's notes until the end. This is The Higher Calling by Bertrand Compare, taken from Your Heritage, a transcription of Compare's sermons by our late friend Gene Snyder, and prepared for publication by Clifton Emmeheiser, along with some of his own critical notes. As Christians, Compare begins, as Christians, we all look forward to another life. The doctrine of resurrection is fundamental in Christianity. However, this is not the final answer to our questions. It is only the starting point for many questions. What will this other life be like? Are there different grades and levels in that life? How can you know what your earned place in that life will be? Compare answers. The only gospel preached in the Christian churches today is the gospel of personal salvation. Is this the all-inclusive answer? No, for some churches regard salvation as a temporary, changing thing. These churches say you can be saved today and lose your salvation tomorrow. I presume they believe you can regain salvation the day after tomorrow. If this is true, you had better be careful on which day you die. Other churches teach, once you have salvation, you have it forever. Which teachings are correct? Let's find out just what salvation is and what benefits it implies. And as for my part, I would say that salvation 
is according to the creation of God, as the scriptures teach. And I will probably end this evening with that citation from Wisdom Chapter 2, where Solomon wrote that God created the Adamic man to be immortal as an image of his own eternity. That is an aspect of the creation of God, which man cannot change under any circumstances. Man is awfully full of himself, thinking that he could change these aspects of the creation of God, or that his deeds would affect the original plan of God for his creation. Some denominational, some, I'm sorry, some denominational churches, such as Jehovah's Witnesses or the United Church of God, deny the so-called eternal security, or as it's more popularly called, the once saved, always saved doctrine. The Presbyterian Church and other churches which follow Calvin teach once saved, always saved as a doctrine, but they put qualifications on what it is to be saved, which allow them breathing room to account for so-called saved people who fall away. In any event, none of the denominational churches properly know who is saved in the first place, as none of them teach the racial aspect of the covenants which Yahweh had made with the children of Israel. But since the attacks on this doctrine almost always include the statements by Paul of Tarsus on those who fall away, which are found in Hebrews chapter 6, for that reason, here I will offer my commentary on the relevant verses from that chapter, which were first presented here in September of 2016. This is from our presentation of Paul's Epistle to the Hebrews, part 5, which was titled, The High Priest of God. And, it be and our citation begins with Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. For impossible it is, those once being enlightened, both tasting of the heavenly gift and becoming partakers of the Holy Spirit, and tasting of the good word of Yahweh, and powers of the coming age, yet falling away to restore again in repentance, upholding the crucifixion among themselves and making an example of the Son of Yahweh. I will omit some of the technical notes on the translation of this passage. Paul is only referring to those who were truly given a chance to understand the gospel. So he is careful to describe as his intended subject those who were once enlightened 
and who experienced the heavenly gift and who had become partakers of the Holy Spirit, who were given the understanding of the promises in God in reference to the powers of the coming age. Saying these things, Paul refers to those who indeed understood the true racial covenant of the Bible and the very purpose of the creation of the Adamic race on earth. Today, most men reject Christ, but this verse is not for them. That is because most men today were never given a chance to actually understand the gospel. The government-approved churches, whether they be the churches of imperial Rome, or the papal government churches of the Middle Ages, or the tax-exempt government churches of the modern world, have never taught the true gospel of Christ. When men who should be Christians, meaning men who are of the lost sheep of the house of Israel, when they reject Christ, if indeed they have heard the true message of the scriptures, then if they reject it, they are ostensibly upholding the crucifixion, whereby the enemies of Christ sought to kill him. Christ himself had said, He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathers not with me scatters abroad. However, where Paul says that when such men fall away, it is impossible to restore them to repentance, he is only referring to their conduct in this life. All of Israel shall be saved, Yet some will evidently have much more difficulty than others. For instance, speaking of two men of his own fellow workers, among those who had made a shipwreck of the faith, as he described it, Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Ostensibly, as Paul had said of the fornicator in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, disobedient or sinful men are delivered to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So we have this example in Hymenaeus and Alexander who were evidently once enlightened, and who must have experienced the heavenly gift and had become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and who were given the understanding of the promises of God in reference to the powers of the coming age. It is quite evident that they would suffer for rejecting it all, and would therefore be punished so that they would, in Paul's words, learn not to blaspheme. So there must be a point in their learning. Since there is no point in learning anything if the spirit is destroyed, if the man is not eternal. Therefore, as Paul had explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abides, which he has built thereupon, 
he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Those with the Spirit of God who have no works will still be preserved through the fire. And therefore, they shall all learn from their experiences here. But many of them, like Hymenaeus and Alexander, they shall have learned too late. They will suffer in this life. Paul continues with a poetic analogy and perhaps have no reward in the end. In verse 7, Paul continues with a poetic analogy in reference to those who reject Christ, which by itself explains why many of them would reject him. For the ground which drinks the rain, coming often upon it, and produces fodder well fit for those by whom it is also tilled, takes a share of the blessing from Yahweh, but bringing forth thorns and thistles, is rejected and akin to a curse of which the result is for burning. Even the ground, which is blessed by God, brings forth thorns and thistles, which are of no use to men, in spite of the fact that it brings forth many good fruits. And these thorns and thistles, these are the works of men, which are all tried and burned in the fire. Anything which endures the fire is worthy of reward. And anything which does not stand the trial goes up in smoke. But we must also learn from the gospel that there are men themselves who are tares. The same Christ who said that he that gathers not with me scatters abroad also said in that same manner as it was recorded in Matthew chapter 7. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns? or figs of thistles. Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that brings forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. For instance, the Canaanites ancestors of the modern Jews, were described as thorns. Likewise, John the Baptist is recorded as having proclaimed that he that comes after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather the wheat into the garner. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So Paul also warned the Corinthians in the same manner where he said in his second epistle to them in its final chapter, Truly, do you not observe, you yourselves observe that Yahshua Christ is among you unless somehow you are spurious. The works of men can be spurious. But since the tares were not planted among the wheat by the enemies of God, but since the tares were planted among the wheat by the enemies of God at the beginning, there are men who may also be spurious, 
and spurious men are also the works of men, while spurious men certainly are not the works of God, as God created nothing which is spurious. Every bastard is spurious, but no bastard was created by God. That is why a good tree cannot possibly bring forth bad fruit. But a bad tree cannot possibly bring forth good fruit. Good fruit. Therefore, Christians, true Christians, who have tasted of the good word of Yahweh and powers of the coming age, originally had an obligation to reject all those who reject the true message of the gospel. As the Apostle John had said in his second epistle, each who going forth and not abiding in the teaching of Christ has not Yahweh. He abiding in the teaching, he also has the Father and the Son. If one comes to you and does not bear this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not speak to welcome him. For he speaking to welcome him takes a share in his evil works. Rather than heed this advice, the government-sanctioned churches of today have instead accepted the Antichrists and rejected the Apostles of Christ. That is the end of my remarks on this subject from Hebrews chapter 6. So what Paul says does not mean how the, it, it does not hold the meaning which the Judeo-Christian churches attribute to it. Returning to Compare's sermon, The Higher Calling. In the Old Testament, three words are commonly translated salvation. These words are Yeshua, the related Yesha, and rarely Teshua. Compare missed a fourth word which is translated as salvation only once in the King James Version, Mosheah. In a related sermon, Salvation or Redemption, Compare said, in the Old Testament, four Hebrew words have been translated salvation. I am not trying to be overly critical, as we all make similar mistakes. There are other words with similar definitions, but which were not translated precisely as salvation in the King James Version, even though they are synonyms. The word which is transliterated as Yeshua here is not the same as the word which we transliterate as the name Yahshua, as it is missing the H, the letter He, which the Hebrew form of Yahshua or Joshua contains following the initial letter Y, the Hebrew word, the Hebrew letter Yad. So Yeshua is not the same word as Yahshua. You'll see that Shua, that Shua or Shea, depending on how you want to interpret the vowels, also appears in the name Hosea or Hosea that first syllable is changed. Continuing with compare, the root meaning of the three words is basically safety. 
varying through rescue to health. All of these words mean deliverance from danger. In the New Testament, two Greek words are translated salvation. These are soteria and soterion. Their meaning is identical with the three Hebrew words I mentioned. And actually, like Yeshua and Yesha, soteria and soterion are actually different forms of the same word. Compare says, all five of these words can be used very correctly to describe the rescue of a person from drowning or any other danger in his life. In our Christian doctrines, they have a special usage to describe our refuge, our rescue from a permanent death. This doctrine is not something new. It is clearly stated in both the Old and New Testaments. Now, I must interject that there is often temporal salvation, which is referred to in Scripture. And temporal salvation is often a matter of keeping the commandments of God. This is evident in many places, such as in Romans chapter 10, where Paul, citing Leviticus chapter 18, had written, For Moses describes the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which does these things shall live by them. In other words, Moses was told that the man who keeps the law shall live for that reason. This understanding was maintained in the New Testament. For example, where Paul had told the jailer at Philippi to believe on the Lord Jesus and thou shalt be saved and thy house. That's in Acts chapter 16. Ostensibly, the faith of the man would not bring the members of his house eternal life, nor could his actions guarantee that they would attain to the resurrection. But a man who believed would keep the commandments also, as Christ himself had insisted. And at that time, if a man kept the commandments, his house would also have had to keep the commandments, because they had a patriarchal society. And by that they would live. Because there is a temporal salvation, some so-called Christians seem to imagine that it is the only salvation of which the Scripture speaks. But that is not true. Aside from temporal salvation, Compare now describes the manner in which salvation was promised to the children of Israel, because there is indeed a greater salvation. In Hosea chapter 13, Verse 14, Yahweh promises us this deliverance from death. In the Hebrew, it is clearer than in the King James Bible. From the hand of the grave, I do ransom them. From death, I redeem them. Where is thy plague, O death? Where is thy destruction, O grave? In the New Testament, John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26 states it clearly. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes on me, 
though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes on me shall never die. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 9 and 15 say, But we see Yahshua, who was made for a little time lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of Yahweh, should taste death for every man and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And that's actually a reference to the people that were under the law. Surprisingly, Compare did not cite chapter 26 of Isaiah, where we see a promise to Israel that thy dead men shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. My dead body, meaning Yahweh himself. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust. For thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Then a little further on, we read in a messianic prophecy in Isaiah chapter 28. Wherefore, hear the word of Yahweh, ye scornful men that rule this people which is in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with hell we are at agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us, for we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have we hid ourselves. Yahweh sarcastically explaining the situation of the rulers in Jerusalem. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believes shall not make haste. Judgment also will I lay to the line, and righteousness to the plummet. And the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the water shall overflow the hiding place. And your covenant with death shall be disannulled, and your agreement with hell shall not stand. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, then ye shall be trodden down by it. Continuing with Compare, we shall disagree with him in one aspect. Compare says, needless to say, this immortality only comes to Christians. It is clearly promised only to those who claim it in the only possible way, by faith in Yahshua. This is recorded in Exodus chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. This was demonstrated as far back as the first Passover in Egypt. None would be spared, even among the Israelites, except those who put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts, outside the front door of their houses. This was a public proclamation of their faith, that by the blood of the real Lamb of Yahweh, they would be saved. The same truth is confirmed in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 4 and Hebrews chapter 2. Salvation comes not just from being an Israelite, one of the chosen people and one of the sons of Yahweh, but only to those that believe in Yahshua. And I would contend with this that the blood on the doorposts in the time of the Exodus 
was for a sign of temporal salvation, not for eternal salvation. While Christians today should cloak themselves in the blood of the Lamb, that too is for a sign of obedience to God. It is my opinion that if we cloak ourselves, then we shall survive when it is time for us to have another exodus out of Mystery Babylon, but that's a different story. Rather, Christ had said in the Gospels that the men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. The queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. And of course, that word generation means race. But I'm quoting the King James Version, and it makes my point. The queen of the south was certainly not an Israelite, and neither were the men of Nineveh, whom Christ had made reference to here, as they were the Ninevites of the Assyrians to whom Jonah had preached repentance. So other Adamic people shall be in the resurrection. Although they are not redeemed, in the sense which Compare later explains of Israel. Nevertheless, even Paul had said, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. By saying as in Adam, he refers to the entire Adamic race and not only that portion of it which is of Israel. From the wisdom of Solomon, at the end of chapter 2, we read, For God created man to be immortal, and made him to be an image of his own eternity. Then, again, at the beginning of chapter 3, But the souls of the righteous are in the hand of God, and there shall no torment touch them. In that manner, in 1 Peter chapter 3, the apostle described Christ as having went and preached unto the spirits in prison, by whom he was referring to the souls of those Adamic men and women who died in the flood of Noah. Then, in relation to them, he also said in chapter 4, that for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in his conclusion to the fact that as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, Paul wrote, So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. 
But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Writing this, Paul was citing the same passage which Compare had cited here, by which we know that Compare was not misunderstanding the meaning of the words of the prophet, because Paul of Tarsus had interpreted them the same way. But now Compare puts the understanding of eternal salvation in its proper perspective. Carefully note this fact. Just being saved promises you nothing more than that you will escape eternal death. It does not say that your future life will be in any particular rank. Will you be among those who are great in the kingdom of Yahweh? Or will you only be a sort of low man on the totem pole? This is another question that we will take up the answer to in detail a little later. Is even this much uncertain? Will Yahweh, after having given you eternal life, change his mind and take it away again? No, you need not fear this. Salvation is not something that you have earned or could possibly earn. No man is good enough to achieve that. It is purely the gift of Yahweh, and he doesn't take back his gifts. We are assured in Romans chapter 11, verse 29, Yahweh does not change his mind about those to whom he gives his blessing or sends his call. So we may safely conclude that nobody ever loses his redemption. However, this is not the full answer to our problem. Now, for my part, I would rather hope that there are no totem poles in the kingdom of heaven. In any event, as we read in Daniel chapter 12, and at that time shall thy people be delivered. Every one that shall be found written in the book, that book of life is the Bible. It is the scriptures. If your ancestors were created by Yahweh, then you are written in the book of life. If you're from one of those tribes, which Yahweh created, which is the reason why they are listed, then you are found written in the book of life. If you're a freaking Zulu or a Manchurian, or some other crazy variety of squat monster or yellow monkey, then you're not found written in the Book of Life. Africans are not found written in the Book of Life. The tribes of Africa are not mentioned in the scripture as having been created by God. They have another origin. They're not even the beasts that were created by God. So as we read in Daniel chapter 12, and at that time thy people shall be delivered. Every one that shall be found written in the book, and many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And they that be wise ostensibly with the wisdom of God, shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they 
that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. Here we must understand that even resurrection to everlasting contempt is nevertheless resurrection and infers that there will be eternal life along with it because the contempt is everlasting. Although, as Compare said, carefully note this fact. Just being saved promises you nothing more than that you will escape eternal death. And with that, of course, we agree. It does not say what your future life will be in any particular rank. Saying this, Compare cited Romans chapter 11, verse 29, where Paul wrote, For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. This is just after Paul had said, And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written. There shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob no matter how ungodly any of the children of Israel were, that ungodliness will be turned away from them, or they will be turned away from that ungodliness. So if the scriptures say that all Israel shall be saved, who are we to imagine that any portion or any member of Israel is not saved? as the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. The scripture says, Jacob I have called, Jacob I have chosen. It doesn't say, some of Jacob I have called, or some of Jacob I have chosen. It doesn't say that anywhere. Compare continues. We find the great apostle Paul highly worried that he might lose something very precious. Remember that Paul had been selected and called by Yahshua personally. Paul had received direct revelations from time to time. He had even been caught up into the third heaven for these revelations. Surely, Paul had no fear of losing his redemption. No one understood more clearly than he that his redemption had been bought for him on the cross, given to him by Yahweh. Nothing could frustrate the will of Yahweh to save him. Let's therefore carefully examine Paul's words to see what he feared he might lose. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, as it reads in the Greek, Paul says, Know you not that those in a race course running all indeed run, but only one receives the prize. Thus run, that you may obtain. And everyone therein contending, in all things has self-controlled. They indeed, therefore, that they may receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. I therefore thus run, as not certainly, not uncertainly, I thus box as not beating the air, but I severely discipline my body and keep it under control, 
less possibly having as a herald summoned others, I myself should be disapproved, indeed, run. When I presented my commentary on this section of the first epistle to the Corinthians, back here a few years ago, I remarked that it is not that only one Israelite may be rewarded in the kingdom of heaven, but that every Israelite should live his or her life in the service of Christ as if that were so. Now, if that is disputed, it can also be said that if every Adamic man and woman were perceived as living for the purpose of having run in a race, then the winner must be Christ himself, as only he had run the race perfectly. Yet through him we all share in the prize according to the promises of God, the immutable promises of God. Continuing with Compare's description, Paul's reference was to the well-known Greek games. The winner was crowned with a wreath of olive, laurel, pine, or parsley. The contestants were kept under strict training rules, just as modern athletes are. When the games opened, a herald sounded a trumpet and summoned the contestants. Paul knew he was in a contest wherein there could be losers as well as winners, and he was determined not to lose. What was this contest in which he was entered? In Philippians chapter 3, Paul explains this. It is much clearer in the Greek than in most translations. If possibly I may attain to the resurrection, resurrection out from among the dead, and Compare has an a parenthetical remark here, and I don't agree with it. I, I will explain that later. His remark says, exanstasis, resurrection out, necros, out from the dead. And he continues to paraphrase Paul, not that I have already received it or have already been perfected, but I pursue, if indeed I may lay hold on that for which Christ also laid hold on me. Brethren, I do not reckon myself to have laid hold on it, but one thing I do, forgetting the things behind, reaching out toward the things ahead, I pursue along the line toward the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ. As many, therefore, as are mature should be of this mind, and if in anything you think differently, even this God will reveal to you. Compare responds to the citation, and he says, Paul knew he was certain to be at least in the resurrection out of the dead. Anastasis Necros. But he was trying hard to be in a special resurrection out from among the dead, leaving most of the dead behind. With this part, I don't agree. This was not a gift. He had to win it. And this he might fail to do. This higher calling was a great prize if he obtained it. Paul knew very well that our Savior, what our Savior had said, many are called, but few are chosen. With the calling went a heavy responsibility. Failure to meet this responsibility would surely lose him the great prize. 
although he would still retain his salvation and his resurrection along with the other dead. This responsibility was repeatedly emphasized by Yahshua. Now, here I cannot agree with Compare, not entirely, because he is making the distinction of a special class among those of the resurrection based on a single preposition, X, prefixed to the word for resurrection, X anastasis, here, rather than the typical word anastasis. Anastasis is literally only a making to stand, although the word was also used to describe resurrection in the New Testament. It's the most common word. In fact, the only other time that ex-anastasis appears in Greek scripture is in Genesis chapter 7, where Brenton translated the word as offspring as it appears in the Alexandrian copy of the Greek which he read, and I will blot out every offspring which I have made from off the face of all the earth, this being in the prelude to the flood of Noah. In that sense, exanastasis was used to refer to something which came to be from something else, the offspring of the man Adam, having come out from Adam. Instead, I would assert that Paul used ex-anastasis here merely for emphasis and not to create or to support an entire doctrine. Liddell and Scott defined the word to mean only a rising from death, resurrection. There is a higher calling of God in Christ, which Paul makes evident in the last two verses of the passage which Compare had cited. But we do not need the prefixed preposition to see or to understand that. As Paul had explained it, the higher calling of God is to be in Christ, because as all Israel shall be saved, and as the entire Adamic race has a promise of eternal life for which they were created, not all of the race has been called to Christ. Compare could not see this, as he wrongly thought that the resurrection was only for Christians, as he had said earlier in this sermon. Rather, the resurrection is for all Adam, and the higher calling is for Christians, which is what Paul was explaining in Philippians chapter 3. Paul worked hard to run the race, doing his best to ensure that he was in Christ as being outside of the will of Christ and not being obedient to Christ. Paul had professed that he may attain, he may fail to attain to the higher calling in Christ, thereby setting an example for his students. Paul is distinguishing the higher calling as being in Christ, while all of the Adamic race shall be resurrected. Compare was wrong on that minor issue. Continuing with Compare, for example, in Luke chapter 12, verse 48, for unto whosoever much is given, of him 
shall much be required. Paul states his realization of this duty in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yeah, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship, then he would not have a special reward. While Paul understood that he had to preach the gospel, that he faced certain peril if he neglected his obligation, he nevertheless had to do it on his own volition if he were to be rewarded for his efforts. Again, Compare continues. This same responsibility was placed upon the prophet Ezekiel, to whom Yahweh said, Son of man, I have made thee a watchman under the house of Israel. Therefore hear the word at my mouth, and give them warning from me. When I say unto the wicked, Thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning, thou speakest to warn the wicked from his evil way, to save his life. The same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at thine hand. Yet if thou warn the wicked, and he turn not from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. Comparary response to this passage from Ezekiel. We see that salvation alone is not the answer for everyone. He who aspires to be rewarded with a special place, a higher calling, must earn it. And with that, we agree. He must expect to have his performance judged with a critical eye. The churches have almost completely overlooked the requirement of earning your rewards. You can also lose these rewards if you fail to meet the requirements for them. The clergymen in these churches concentrate on teaching only the gospel of personal salvation. As usual, this is because they won't read and study the Bible. This principle of rewards to be earned is emphasized in many parts of the Bible. And I would say that for that reason, James wrote in chapter 3 of his epistle that you must not produce many teachers, my brethren, knowing that we shall receive a greater judgment. Apparently, the greater numbers of teachers invites a greater number of heresies from those who should not be teachers. Continuing with Compare, for example, in Isaiah chapter 40, we read, Behold, Yahweh will come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work is before him. The New Testament also consistently states this theme. In Matthew chapter 16, Yahshua says, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Revelation chapter 11 states, And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, 
and to the saints and them that fear thy name, small and great, and should destroy them that destroy the earth. I know most of the ministers and their unfortunate congregations who have been misled by them will say, but this can't apply to us because we have been told that Christians are no longer subject to any judgment. This is a mistaken and false doctrine. The clergymen would know this if they only studied their Bible, even just the New Testament. The Apostle Paul tells us plainly in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he has done, whether it be good or bad. The best Christian Christians that have ever lived will be judged. Not a judgment of condemnation for punishment, but a judgment to decide how small or how great his reward shall be. This is evidently what the scriptures teach in Daniel chapter 12 or in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and throughout the related sayings and parables of Christ in the gospel. There are different rewards for different men that we store up treasure in heaven through our good works. We're all going to be saved. Every white man is going to be quote unquote saved. Many white men will have no reward. The rest of us, some will have a little reward. Some will have great reward. Those who have sacrificed themselves for their kin, for their people, they will evidently have the most reward. This is evidently what the scriptures teach in Daniel chapter 12, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and throughout the related sayings and parables of Christ in the gospel. Compare continues. This is what Paul was speaking about when he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Know you not that those running in a race course running all indeed run, but only one receives the prize. Thus run that you may obtain, and everyone therein contending in all things has self-control. They indeed, therefore, that they may receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable I therefore thus run, not as uncertainty. I thus box, not as beating the air, but I severely discipline my body and keep it under control. In other words, when he swings at something, he hits it. Lest possibly, having as a herald some and others, I myself should be disapproved. Paul was making an illustration by comparing what worldly runners run for, which is a wreath, to what Christians strive for, which is the reward which they shall receive in eternal life. Returning to Compare, Paul knew that the prize of the higher calling could be won or lost. He would do nothing that would risk its loss. John also gives the warning in 2 John verse 8, Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Faith alone cannot bring you the great rewards. 
In Habakkuk chapter 2, which Paul quotes in Romans chapter 1, it says, the just shall live by his faith. Notice, merely life is all his promises. If you want more than that, it is up to you to show yourself worthy of it. Therefore, Paul, who stressed the value of faith more than any other writer in the Bible, worked for his reward. He finally felt that he had gained it. For he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7-8, through 8, one of Paul's last epistles, I have fought the good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which Yahweh, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. Yahshua discussed this idea quite thoroughly. Of course, there are many varieties of good deeds. Each of them has its own value. Some great, some small. In Matthew chapter 10, Yahshua said, Whosoever shall give drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water, only in the name of a disciple, I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. We certainly cannot compare the reward for the simple deed with the reward of such works as those of Matthew, John, and Paul. The higher the quality of the work done, the reward must be proportionately just. But on the other hand, there is the parable of the vineyard workers, who came late to the vineyard. Yet they were still rewarded with the same pay as those who had come early. Then there is he who was given much, and while he may appear to have done a lot, may have had the talent and resources to do even more and did not. So the reward is what is just in the eyes of God, although it may not be quite what is expected by men. Compare says, the cost of the great deeds is high. Men will hate you for it, even those men who are receiving the most benefit from what you are doing. It will take more and more of your time and effort, crowding out many things which you formerly liked to do. It will become your life itself. The claims of this world are strong. It is not easy. Can you take it? Actually, and rather sadly, many of the men whom I know who have taken up the cause of our faith have quit for one reason or another. Some of them I know had quit simply because things did not go as well for them as they had imagined. Yet Paul never quit, although at diverse times he was stoned, he was jailed, he was shipwrecked, he had to walk great distances on foot for want of a better way to travel. He didn't have a carriage. He didn't have a team of horses and a chauffeur. In the face of adversity, there is greater trial, and he who faces it cheerfully shall indeed have a greater reward. Returning to Compare. In Luke chapter 14, Yahshua gives the warning, Whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sits not down first and counts the cost, 
whether he has sufficient to finish it. Lest happily, after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it began to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, sits, doesn't sit down first and consult whether he is able with 10,000 men to meet him that comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends an ambassador and desires conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsakes not all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? Compare responds to that and says that the path to salvation is smooth and easy. Faith is all that it requires, not much in the way of deeds. And I would assert that it doesn't even require faith, at least on our part. Rather, it requires faith on the part of God to fulfill the promises which he had made to Abraham. And in turn, Abraham received those promises because he had believed God. As Paul had explained of Abraham, in part, in Romans chapter 4, therefore it is a faith that it might be by grace. To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. What's the faith of Abraham? The faith of Abraham is simply what Abraham believed. It's not what we believe. What we believe is the faith of Bill or, or Tom or Paul or Sue or Dick or Harry or whatever. It's not the faith of Abraham. We think we hold the faith of Christ and we should be confident that we do, but we constantly have to make little amendments here and there to what we believe as we study the gospel and realize that some of our past ideas aren't necessarily true. So we attempt to prove ourselves by studying the gospel of Christ and coming to a better understanding of what our faith should be and then putting it to practice so that that's what our faith is. That's a good and humble Christian. None of us... <coughs> Not one of us know everything yesterday. Not one of us know everything 10 years ago or 15. Not one of us know everything tomorrow. We have to continually study and pray and seek better understanding through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's a lesson in Scripture, which, as I've been discussing in my John commentary, even the apostles had to undergo. Even they had to undergo that, that transition in their beliefs in Judea as they were fishermen in Galilee in 
25 AD, that transition they had through the ministry of Christ and through their later learning as they were guided by the Holy Spirit later in their apostolic careers, which we've proven actually happened. The book of Acts is a record of that. So the faith of Abraham is not what we believe. It's what Abraham believed. It's that simple. Paul explains it on those terms as Romans chapter 4 proceeds. And in verse 17, we read, as it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed. That's the faith of Abraham, what Abraham believed. Even God, who quickens the dead and calls those things which be not as though they were. And Paul next explains what he means by that. Speaking of Abraham, who against hope, because it seemed crazy, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. That's the faith of Abraham. And being not weak in faith, he considered not, and this also proves it, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith. So we see what Abraham believed. The faith of Abraham is that his seed would become many nations. Giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. So we see what Abraham believed, and then Paul says in verse 22, and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. So because of the faith which Abraham had, <coughs> the promise is sure to all of the seed, in spite of whatever faith any of the seed may have, period. Returning to Compare, this way has been left open for those who could not climb the steep and rocky path. Compare is talking about the simple fact that all Israel is saved, the simple fact that every Adamic man has eternal life. This way has been left open for those who could not climb the steep and rocky path, which is the only way to the great rewards. If you are satisfied merely to be in the kingdom of Yahweh, but not to be a part of Yahshua's administrative staff by which he governs the world, then salvation may be all that you need. If you aspire to a higher calling, then you must prepare for it in this life, as the next life will be too late to begin. Further on in this paper, Compare justifies the comment concerning Yahshua's administrative staff. Not to say that I entirely agree. I don't entirely agree with that statement. But we'll let it unfold here. So he continues. If you consider taking the difficult and thorny path to the higher calling, then count the cost and, frankly, 
estimate your own ability to pay the price, as Yahshua warned. Be sure that you will be tested to see what sort of metal you are made from. Only the finest steel will make a good sword blade. Not all can take it. Remember what Yahshua said, many are called, but few are chosen. In Luke chapter 9, verses 61 and 62, we read, And another also said, Master, I will follow thee, but let me first go to bid them farewell, which are home at my house. And Yahshua said unto him, No man having put his hand to the plow, and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of Yahweh. Is it worth it? Yes, it is. In this world, it means plenty of trouble. To make a fine sword blade, the metal is heated red hot, then laid on an anvil and heavily beaten with a hammer, like each one of us. Forging it into shape and compressing the metal to give it strength, it could never get any other way. Then it is again heated red hot and suddenly plunged into cold water to harden it. Finally, it is heated again to draw the temper enough that it will not be brittle, no longer easily broken. So your troubles, when you seek to become a follower of Yahshua, may well be compared to the making of a fine sword blade. After this, you will be really fit to do battle with the devil and his children. It is certainly not a pleasant process, but you don't want to become the man I'm sorry, but don't you want to become the man which this process will make? There is no easy, cheap, financially profitable way. If you start on this hard path, be sure to hold out to the end. Hebrews chapter 10 sums up the whole point. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draws back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Don't be laughed to scorn because you have started to build but could not finish. Paul reviews all of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. For another foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Yahshua. Now, if any man builds upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abides which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet through the very fire. Of course, there are competing religions and philosophies. But because all things were created through Christ, he being Yahweh God incarnate, nobody can really build except on the foundation already laid by Christ, even if they think they are doing something original. Being in opposition to him, they also are only building wood, hay, and stubble. Now, Compare concludes, because Paul had correctly taught, 
that even if all a man's works burn up in the fire, that he himself would still be saved. Compare concludes, if you are really one of Yahweh's elect, then build something which can stand the fire and receive your reward. You don't have to build anything and you'll be there. But who knows how miserable an existence that might be. That is the goal which each and every Christian should have, to build such a thing, such a thing that could stand the fire, and to keep building in one way or another. And some of us build things that we can't see. Some of us are simply kind and serve all of our brethren and do things which other people can't see, but God sees them. Don't be fooled into thinking that you have to build something which men can see with their eyes because Christ had told us to give our alms in secret to help one another secretly, not for the purpose of announcing it to everybody. Now we shall present comments by Clifton Emmerheiser. Along the same topic as Compare's thesis here, the following is a small portion of what I wrote in a brochure entitled Resurrection Life, How, When, and For Whom. There was probably, Clifton citing his own paper, there is probably no other biblical topic with so many and varied concepts as the resurrection. Each little splinter group has its own interpretation, every denomination or sect, and usually applies it to their own sect. In other words, our sect is the sect with the 144,000. <laughs> our sect is the sect that does everything right so that we could be saved. And of course, all of that is just bullshit. It's all bullshit. Clifton continues, but at 2 Peter chapter 1, he says in verse 20, knowing this, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. To this we must ask, does the resurrection fall under the category of prophecy? It would appear that it might be a good idea to see what Scripture has to say on the subject. When studying a topic in Scripture, it is always a good idea to use the first, the rule of first mention. The Baptists are big on this, but they don't obey it. The first mention alluding to eternal life is found at Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. And Yahweh, singular Elohim, Clifton always trying to stress the fact that that word Elohim, even though it's plural in form, refers to one God, Yahweh. And Yahweh Elohim said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and live forever. The only tree through which we can receive eternal life is Yahshua the Messiah. And Yahshua was no more a physical wooden tree than the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is metaphorical language for living entities, Yahweh and Satan. The Bible uses the metaphor dry tree for a eunuch in Isaiah chapter 
56. Yet there are those who demand that every biblical tree be a wooden tree. They even demand that Eve ate from a wooden tree. Thus, at Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, we have the first allusion to eternal life. It is amazing, but there are many who don't believe in a bodily resurrection, that somehow it will be only spiritual. There is probably no other biblical doctrine so twisted entirely out of shape. Let's read John chapter 5, verse 28. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice. Would not this be similar to when Yahshua Christ called Lazarus from the dead, except he was resurrected only to die again in John chapter 11? However, this passage is resurrection to life eternal, and as we shall see later, the term all must be qualified. Clifton would, of course, insist that it refer to all of Israel. Continuing at verse 29, continuing to quote Clifton, and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of judgment. Well, how many resurrections do we have here? Two, of course. There are a lot who teach a general resurrection. Just think of the amount of confusion that would cause. These are two different resurrections at two different times. And the first of these two resurrections is not going to happen just at the beginning of the so-called rapture, followed by a so-called seven years of tribulation, as the futurists claim. Rather, life will be continuing on, similar to how we observe it today. And as Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Behold, I will show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. Rather, I believe that the resurrection of life are those whom Daniel says will awaken to everlasting life, and that the resurrection of judgment are those whom Daniel says will awaken to shame and everlasting contempt. These are two portions of the same resurrection, but that is just my opinion. Clifton now concludes with the portion of his paper which he cites here. This will be an interesting period of time to experience for all those who will go through it. It will be a judgment in itself. Imagine all the embarrassed pastors who were teaching false doctrine, not receiving a glorified body, while some in their congregations do. Consider the spouse who receives a glorified body, but the mate who does not, because of having a tinge of racial impurity. Envision the surprise of many who had family or friends who recently died, who everyone considered outstanding Christians, who are not resurrected, while many who were not considered Christian are. Ponder why some are not included, even though racially pure, simply because they dealt deceitfully. 
confiscating someone else's lawful, valuable possessions. And I will disagree with that as I write my conclusion. Also, contemplate the wonderment of people when some will suddenly appear to be about 30 rather than 70 or 80, Clifton speaking about their age. And think of the amazement when it is discovered that not a single member of a non-white or half-breed are included. So the all at John 5.28 does not include all races. William Fink's translation of Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 15, reads, Do all things apart from murmuring and disputing, that you would be perfect and with unmixed blood, blameless children of Yahweh, in the midst of a race, crooked and perverted, among whom you appear as luminaries in the cosmos. And of course, I stand by that translation today. Clifton was quoting it as I had written it back in maybe 2003, probably sooner, where Clifton asked his readers to ponder why some are not included, even though racially pure, simply because they dealt deceitfully, confiscating someone else's valuable lawful possessions. He evidently thought that perhaps they may not be resurrected like the aliens and bastards that he correctly said are not resurrected. This is contrary to what Compare had attested here. But I would assert that those people would indeed be resurrected, either to the mercy of God or possibly to Daniel's everlasting contempt. Clifton first wrote that paper, which he references here, in April of 2007. So perhaps he was not yet on quite the same page on this subject as he was later in his ministry. Later in his ministry, he was in full agreement with me on the fact that the entire Adamic race did indeed have eternal life, whether it be for life or for eternal contempt and that all Israel would be saved. Where Clifton spoke of some people who would suddenly appear to be about 30 rather than 70 or 80, and where Compare spoke of people attaining a position on Yahweh's administrative staff with which he governs the world. These things I would rather not conjecture. The Apostle John had written in chapter 3 of his first epistle, Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, meaning Christ, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. If John said, it does not yet appear what we shall be, then neither will I pretend to know and would rather not offer conjecture. But in any event, we must agree that Compre was certainly correct in two important points. First, that all Israel certainly is saved. And second, that there is indeed a higher calling. A calling beyond that salvation.
But with this, it should be perfectly evident that the position which we have at Christogenia on the issue of salvation, eternal life, and redemption was also the position of Bertrand Compare, except for a few minor or relatively minor points. We are not teaching anything novel, but rather we are seeking only to elucidate the true meaning of Scripture in relation to our race, which certainly was created to fulfill a higher calling. And the plan of Yahweh our God will not fail in spite of the sins and failures of men. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the only, the only one who can and who will throw every Jew nigger and squat monster along with every other non-white into the lake of fire. Good night.